Good morning, Watermark. How are we doing? It is, uh, I'm not kidding you, man. It's such a privilege to get to do what I do, to stand before you and uh, hopefully cut straight the word of God, to, to not get you wandering around wondering what truth is. It is really a privilege. So thank you um, for letting me have it. Let me pray for us. Can I? Father, we come to you right now and we want to see our living hope. I know that there are friends in this room that are coming in here that do not yet understand that life can be found in you because life in this world has found them wanting. And they question how could a good sovereign God allow the abuse and the sadness and the trials and the diagnosis and the circumstance come to them the way it has. And it has made them question you. Even people that have sought your face this week, if they haven't questioned you, Lord, I know I've got friends in this room that need to be reminded that you are their living hope. Their spines need to be stiffened. Their hearts need to be made true again. I know I need to focus on who you are and what you're doing and what's at stake and where we are in history and how it all makes sense. And so we thank you that you have not left us here to hear some speculations of a 57-year-old. But we get to stand before you right now and open your word and be instructed. We are not the blind leading the blind. We are not blind men being led by madmen. We don't need philosophers. We thank you that we have the word of God. So may we pay attention to it. Would you use it to open the eyes of those who have been blinded to your goodness? And would you deepen the awareness in our heart of those of us who already believe? We thank you, Father, for your nearness and for the majesty of your kindness towards us. Amen. Well, next week is Easter, and I hope that you lean into your fear of gathering and come gather with us if you're online, because we're okay. We've been here for a while doing this, and we're okay, and you will be too, so come and gather with us. Uh, it will be awesome. There's something about being in the room with other believers when you sing and when you study that does um, something right and good and true in us. You're going to see today that God tells you that this idea that you should seek faithfulness in your relationship with him alone is a completely unbiblical idea. So we understand that certain people have needed to be online for a while, but God does not want you to be online for long. He wants you to find a body that you can connect to. And so I pray that this may be a place that God gives you permission to connect with us. All right, we are in 2 Timothy. It is such an amazing book. It's one we ought to study because, as I love to say, we um, are each week in here doing a little pastor's conference. We invite non-believers to come to it. We are um, helping individuals that aspire to be elders, leaders, overseers, faithful men and women. We're trying to help you so that when you stand before God, he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And so we are here to equip, encourage, and remind you this isn't our only equipping. If all you're doing is getting equipped for 45 minutes to an hour a week, you're not very equipped. We have amazing opportunities here that are all through our Watermark News, Equip Disciple, our men's studies, our women's studies. We've got training days. We have amazing core classes. I keep hearing about Nathan Wagnon's Follow Jesus that I'm going to personally take soon. And so I commend them all to you and encourage you to dive deeply into the Word of God. David did a great job last week talking about what happens if you don't. And so we today are going to look at three verses. And uh, in order to do that, we get to go back to the six or so that we looked at last week because Paul is always reminding you of what he said and then he's illustrating it. So let me just say this to you. In every single section of this letter. I was going to say chapter, but remember it's a letter. And so there's four easily broken up 
sections of the letter. And in every section, you're going to see the same thing. Three things, four times. Four sections, three things. In every section, you're going to see the word of God venerated. You should preach it and you should protect it. We're just in the second section of this letter. We're going to get it two more times. Secondly, we are um, told that this world is not our home and we shouldn't act like this is supposed to uh, be heaven right now. It's not heaven, but we have a living hope. And hope is having confidence that light will come when you are in the middle of the darkness. And we are people that have confidence that greater and greater light is coming. So in every section, you will see a reminder that this isn't supposed to be easy. Do whatever it takes to maintain faithfulness. And then there's always some encouragement in every section. You're going to be rewarded. God is not so unkind as to forget the kindness which you have shown towards his name. What an amazing statement. I'm quoting from Hebrews. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. He calls us out of our darkness into his light from our wandering and he makes our path straight. He, makes, uh, he takes us from the place of impossibility to be reconciled to him and he makes provision for us. That's why we celebrate at least once a year with great fervor and focus the cross. We should do it every day. But we do it at least once a year. We lock in. And so um, God has, in his kindness, shown us how to be reconciled to him. But then he says this. God is not so unkind as to forget your suffering and persevering and being faithful for him and holding true to the word of God. And so it's going to be worth it. Christians, we need to be reminded of that. Because when you're at war, when you're in the middle of training as an athlete, when you're in the middle of the hard work of farming, it can get tiresome and it's easy to quit. And God says, don't quit. So here's the section that we're going to study specifically. It is in uh, 2 Timothy 2, verses 20, 21, and 22. And so let's just read it. And then I'm going to explain to you why we're going to bounce back a little bit. Here we go. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if any man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace with those who call on God or call on the Lord from a pure heart. All right, when you read a text like this, and again, I love the privilege of gathering together like this because I've read that, I, I could quote it over the course of my life as a believer. And I will tell you, sometimes you read a passage like that and you go, okay, I want to be a vessel of honor and you just kind of move on. And there is so much here. When you study your Bible and when you look at your Bible, you want to slow it down and let it soak in. You want to ask yourself, why is it there? What's the purpose of the metaphor? Ask questions. And then go back. One of the questions you got to ask yourself is in verse 21, what are the things that we are to cleanse ourselves from so that in the large house we can be vessels of honor? Because none of us want to be useless. And that's one of the things you're going to see. Let me just take you back um, to the section we studied last week. So in 2 Peter chapter, oh, sorry, 2 Peter, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, you saw this little phrase right there where it says, um, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God. That's why I don't have any problem going back. Because that idea there, remind them, it is, um, it's something, the, the, the verb tense is continually, it's a present perfect verb, like don't ever stop reminding them. 
And it says right here, remind them of these things. So even right there in verse 14, what he's doing is he's taking you back and he's saying, remind them. Who's the them? David did a good job of telling us the them is the people that want to be faithful disciples. Okay? And so let me just remind you of this. From 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, where it says, where Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so what Paul's doing is he's explaining what a disciple of Jesus looks like. What I'm doing is I'm walking you through what God has left us so that we can know if I'm going to be a useful vessel, if I'm going to be a faithful disciple, what should I look like? And so he tells us in verses 3 and 4, just so we don't have to make it up, the first thing you have to be is an active soldier. We're not AWOL. We're not um, on leave. We are an active soldier. We don't, in verse 4, entangle ourselves in the affairs of everyday life. And we suffer hardship because God has asked us to live as aliens and strangers and to be at war with the spiritual forces of darkness in our own life. And then as we overcome that spiritual force of darkness in our life, we can be a source of light to others and show the kindness of God to others so they too could join in the grace of God. We are to be, verse 5, Competitive athletes, professional athletes, not amateurs, not part-times. We are to be, in verse 6, hard-working farmers who uh, don't just think that food grows at Tom Thumb. We are to be individuals that know that it takes a lot of labor. And so disciples are active soldiers, pro-athletes, hard-working farmers, And then he goes on to just remind us and uh, encourage us that it's worth it. And he's going to tell us um, and solemnly warn us that there are a lot of people who know the story of Jesus, and I want you to clue in on this. There's a lot of people who know the story of Jesus who say, Lord, Lord, to him, who are going to hear from him, depart from me. Because they... They're like a bunch of folks that walk in Dick's Sporting Goods and buy a DAC jersey and they think they're a Dallas Cowboy. (laughs) Because they wear camo and they think they're a soldier. And Paul doesn't want Timothy to be disqualified and he wants Timothy to reproduce other faithful men and women. In his first letter to Timothy, he said, if any person aspires to be a faithful man or woman, he desires a good thing. And so we're telling you how to be a good thing. We're telling you how to be that disciple, how to be a vessel of honor, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. We're telling you how to be um, a vessel of gold and silver and not of earthenware and wood that you haul the garbage out in. We all know this. All right, so let me just say um, this real quick to you. In, In verse 19, Uh, 19, it says this, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. Because you might be asking yourself, well, Todd, which one am I? I'm going to tell you how you can know this week. God knows who are his. That's verse 19. The firm foundation of God stands. If you are in Christ, then that ground will not be shaken. But how do you know you're in Christ? You're not just a hearer of the word who deludes himself, but you hear and act on the word of God. It's why we are reminding you, you you don't just want to hear that believers say certain things. You don't just hear that believers are active soldiers, competitive professional athletes, and hardworking farmers. You want to make sure you do the things that active soldiers, professional athletes, not part-time amateur Christians, and hardworking farmers do. Because if you've got the firm foundation that won't be blown away at the judgment, You will build on what you say you believe. People say what they think, but they do what they believe. And what Paul is telling Timothy is, Timothy, are you part of the faithful? And are you teaching faithfulness to others? Not facts, but faithfulness. Um, We are not here just to make an information transfer. We are here to be transformed by information. Does that make sense? 
this world, this, um, even, there are very few churches, fewer and fewer churches today that are um, accurately handling the word of truth. And I'll make that, I'll prove that to you today sociologically, all right? Um, there is less and less places where you can hear the word of God taught. Few biblical churches, Bible churches, there is not much orthodoxy out there anymore in America. But here's the danger. In most of the places where there's orthodoxy, there is no call and accountability to orthopraxy. One of the reasons, and and what I mean by that is straight doing, straight practice, because people will take notes all day long. They go, oh, I love him. He's such a great teacher. I I don't want to just be a great teacher. I want to spur you on. I want to wake you up. I want to call you out and forward. I want you to do the same for me. I want you to admonish me when I'm unruly, encourage me when I'm faint-hearted, and help me when I'm weak with great patience because we don't want to merely be hearers who delude ourselves. People love to come and take notes with a sound exegete of God's word, and we ought to make sure that we have sound expositors of the Bible, exposit, to take their thinking from the text, not guys who are trying to figure out what's right and true. But here's the problem. There's a lot of useless dishes because all they filled themselves up with is notes. And they love good teaching and they applaud how insightful they are and it just stays there. And churches leave them alone. Can I just say, this is a place that we love you. You are free to come here. This is about as safe a place as you can have if you're a non-believer. We have entire ministry set up where you can just come and ask questions. You're not going to offend us. It's called Great Questions. And we just want to, in a very non-judgmental way, because we believe God's word is truth, then no amount of scrutiny is going to affect it. So we say, come and fire your best questions at us. Come and tell us what your, your intellectual problems are and, 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 and why you're wrestling with embracing the way, the truth, and the life that is revealed by God through Jesus Christ. It meets every Monday night, and there are people who all throughout the week are doing that with their non-Christian friends. And just say, let's talk about it. We don't expect you, if you're not a believer, to act like you're a believer. That's lunacy. It's why when we start our, our worship services here, we go, hey, we're about to sing right now, but if you're not a believer, why would you want to sing love songs to our God? You don't know him, but, but we're going to start to declare to you right now the greatness of our God. And we hope that you listen because it's not just when Todd gets up here to teach that you're going to hear truth. Here comes some truth. Jesus Christ is our living hope. Here comes some truth. We sing praises to him because of what he's done for us. Here comes some truth. God's love to us is reckless. It's so overwhelmingly kind that we can't get over it. So we've already been preaching, and we wouldn't expect you to come in here and act like a Christian. It's the worst thing that you can do. We don't expect you to take communion with us this Good Friday. You're welcome to come and see us remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, but you don't have to do it because you're not saved by rituals or by songs. You're saved by Jesus. And if you know who Jesus is, that information transforms you. All right? And that's, that's what we're calling you to. So as a non-believer, hey, we love you. All right? We're glad you're here. And we're not here to get you to um, change your behavior. Our goal is to help you understand the kindness of God to change your thinking. Because I bet if you're a non-believer here today, you're just like me. And I thought the second I believe in God, life was over. There was no more Cancun spring break. There was no more multiple um, individuals that I could hang out with in physically intimate ways. There was no more on and on and on and on and on. All the things that I thought were going to be so kind to me if I just drank deeply from those broken cisterns. And so I didn't want anything to do with God because God, I thought, was a cosmic killjoy. So I'm not looking to change your behavior. Can I tell you what changed me? What changed was my understanding that God loved me. I was like an arrogant adolescent. And I was, and you're going to get this in a second, filled with youthful lusts. I've raised six individuals filled with useful lusts. And I saw me every time. 
What do I mean by that? There's something about kids, there's sweet kids. I, I uh, yesterday went to my very first grandchild's soccer game. <laughs> and I remembered what a disaster four-year-old soccer games are, right? <laughs> to call it soccer. I, I told my, uh, my son-in-law who was coaching that uh, clearly he, he needs to work into his offense what the other team's offense was, which is one little boy, every time he got near a ball, he would take it and basically pick it up and put it in front of the goal <laughs> and kick it. And because we live in the world that we live in today, we can't tell them that's wrong, okay? <laughs> and so they like lost 12 to one. And I said, you gotta work the handball, pick up, move in front of the goal into your offense. It's not soccer. But watch, I love that three to five year old. I love that age, okay? But like Shere Khan in Rudyard Kipling's Jungle Book said, the problem with Mowgli, the problem with man cubs is they grow to be men. And there's something that happens 10 to 13 where it just, we just don't just cry because we want the food that we want, don't just throw tantrums you know, in the candy aisle. We just start to throw tantrums at all and we think the whole world's mad and if we could just do what we want to do and be left alone, life would be filled with joy. And we start to think if I could just follow the lusts of my flesh, follow the pride of my life, if I could just get what my eyes see is good, life would be grand. Now here's the problem. And by the way, right now I'm preaching to you from the text. Flee youthful lusts. Youthful lusts don't just exist in your youth. They start there. Okay? And the problem is, is that some people never grow up. They, they, they never adult. They never come to their senses. I can remember when my oldest son, Cooper, turned 18. And he had a hard time, as he shared, as he spoke to a bunch of college students this week on Thursday night at the 9. He had a hard time uh, believing that dad had his best interest in mind. And he had a hard time believing God had his best interest in mind. He was a good kid. But man, he was, he was playing with useful lusts. And I knew it. Man, I just told him I loved him. And I just said, hey, bro, you got to learn to tame that thing. I know you think it's just a fun little thing to play with right now. But that little lion cub that you're toying with grows up to be a lion and it will consume you. I can remember when he was 18. He said, hey, you know, he was working at the time for a guy, and the guy told him, Cooper, you turned 18 today. You know, physiologically, there's something that happens in a human's brain at 18 that all of a sudden there's just a new chemical that allows them to no longer be a slave to their youth. And so Cooper thought that literally happened on May 19th. Uh, <laughs> and he announced to me, Dad, I'm 18. It's all gone. And I go, oh, I wish that was true. Because I just celebrated, you know, 55, and it's not true with me. Those youthful lusts are still trying to devour me. And I got to flee them, and I got to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And so, son, those things aren't gone, but I'm glad you want them to be. And so, what I'm telling you is we are committed to helping you here. Not just hear a transfer of information, but to be transformed by that information. Because that's how you become a useful vessel. Verse 19 says, look, at, uh, well, let me just do this. Verse 20 that we're starting with, in a large house. The large house there is the church. This is a large place here at Watermark. And there are useful vessels and there are useless vessels. There is gold and silver and there is wood and earthenware. There are individuals here that... Um, aren't just going to take out the trash, but, and I say this with tenderness, that are going to be found to be wanting when they stand before the Lord, that are going to be trashed. Right here, good old watermark. Because they like the information, they say things with their lips, but their heart is far from him. And that is why we pay attention, and from a pure heart who loves you, we address these things in one another's life. We are not the morality police, but we are trying to say, hey, brethren, if we say we love Jesus, let us build on that foundation of love. And let us not kick against the goads. And let us not say he is good and then go our own way. 
Let us not say that God's way is right and true and pure and then still be committed to useful lusts. It's okay. I tell people all the time, these are the youthful lusts that still wage war against my soul. You need to know about them. You need to pray with me. You need to make sure I'm not making uh, a way to have those be present in my life. If pride rises up, if my pace is too much, let's have conversations all the time because I want to be a useful vessel. All right? So watch. When you hear youthful lusts, don't think it's just the problem of youth. That's when it starts. There's a time it turns on. We're born sinners, but there's a time when we can articulate our will to live as we want to live, and we go, Dad doesn't know what he's talking about. Mom is out of date, and God is oppressive. And I think I'll follow me some me. And let me just tell you something. I see lots of guys in their 20s and their 30s that are just uh, older boys. I see men 40s and 50s who are leaving the wife that they're committed to, and they're just boys. And they cannot discipline themselves. That's the mark of a man. You say something and you do it. You get up early and you work. And you're diligent. And you adult. Or should I say, you Christian adult. And there are churches that are filled with people. The invisible church in verse 19. God knows who are his. Our job, we at Watermark don't go around. The elders have never one time gone through the 10,000 members and gone, saved, probably not. Useful, useless, gold, <laughs> trash, all right? There's no label by you, okay? But what we do do, all right, first of all, we just say we have a responsibility. We're going to give an account for your souls. And so we've got a system here where we just say, hey, are others around you affirming you and encouraging you and helping you and spurring you on to love and good deeds? Do we see you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Because God knows those who are his. My job is not to see through you to see if you're really a believer. My job is to see you through to greater faithfulness. And it's your job. It's why we have communities, all right, that are running their hands over each other's dishes and saying, hey, man, you've been useful to the master this week. So verse 19 is the invisible church. Verse 20 is the visible church. And don't you see this? Don't you see just in general Christians and go, that dude, that gal is faithful. That one, that one is getting the job done. We all see it. That one is adequate and prepared for every good work. I want my non-Christian friends to be with that one. So that's what verse 20 is. All Paul's doing is he's saying, God knows the ones that are his, but in the large house, there are some vessels, some skuas, um, that are wood and earthenware, and the wood ones are dishonorable. They're not fit for public use. You don't want the world to know they call themselves Christian. You know anybody like that? You're like, hey, bro, can you do me a favor and take that off the back of your car. Can you remove, can you just change your jewelry choice? Hey, please don't wear that t-shirt because you're confusing people. Um, Paul says, remind them of these things. And that is who we are to be and what's at stake. Specifically this. Let me just remind you of this. This is a trustworthy statement. Let me read to you again. Remind them, the ones that want to be faithful servants, the true church, the ones that are building on the foundation of Christ. This is verses 11, 12, and 13 again. Now listen to me. This is really important. It's a trustworthy statement. So that's why he says in verse 14, remind them of that. If we die with him, we will live with him. In other words, if we're no longer about us, but we're about living for eternity because we are active soldiers, we're pro-Christians, we're hardworking, diligent followers of Jesus, we will live with him. If we endure, which is what soldiers and athletes and farmers do, we're going to reign. It's worth it. 
But mark my word, if we deny him, he's going to deny us. Paul's quoting there from Jesus himself. If we are faithless, he is faithful, for he can't deny himself. In other words, and let me just remind you what this means. What he's saying is if you say one thing and do another, God's faithful, and he will not be mocked. And he knows who the cowboys are and who's been to Dick's Sporting Goods to buy a jersey. One of my favorite uh, guys who wrote a book, Disciples Are Made, Not Born, he did, he exegeted, he, he wrote a commentary on this. His name is William Hendrickson. And uh, Hendrickson said this, the faithfulness of God on his part is that means that he will carry out his threats as well as his promises. That's exactly what verse 13 means. God's faithful. And when he says he's not going to be mocked, he's not going to be mocked. So why do I say all this? Because you don't want to be useless. You don't want to be garbage that takes out garbage. You want to be gold. The gold standard. The faithful men who have heard these things and do it and give it to others. Okay? And so Paul's explaining how to be that. Uh, here's the deal. Look at verse 21. If anyone cleanses himself from these things, so I told you what the these things were in verse 14. Now I'm going to tell you what the these things are in verse 21. Okay? I'm going to tell you how to be a vessel of honor right there in verse 20. Right? Because he says... Some of the gold and silver vessels are vessels of honor. They are individuals that are diligent, that show themselves approved to God as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed because he's useful. You, you don't want to be that guy that when your master and, and the master of the large house, the master of the church is not your little local elders. The master of the large house is Jesus. And he is looking for you this week to be faithful and active in service so when you go out, he can say, you're ready in that high school. You're ready in that neighborhood. You're ready in that workplace. You're ready on that boondoggle. You're ready in that conversation by your kid's soccer game. And you're useful to me. You live holy lives and you're wholly committed to me and you know that this is war and there are souls that are in the balance. And so you are on the alert, and you're not being compromised by the world. That's what the church is, right? So the vessel of honor are individuals that are not, watch this, that are cleansed from these things. Now, what are the, these things in verse 21? Answer. They are the non-faithful teachers and compromised church that was described in verses 14, 16, and 17. So let me tell you what you have to be careful of. This is so important. He says, let's solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to be useless, which is a catastrophe. That's the word ruin. Literally, it's the word catastrophe in Greek of the hearers. It is a catastrophe if somebody doesn't give maximum effort to accurately handle the word of truth yourself. But not only that, when you are under individuals who don't rightly teach the word of God. Now, let me just say this. I, I, you know, talking about being um, useful, I, I one time was uh, blessed. I had some friends who invited me to go on a fly fishing trip. And uh, we were up in British Columbia and we were fly fishing. And uh, we were on this river, and we had an old, crusty fishing guide who apparently didn't think we were paying him enough because he wasn't happy from the day we said hello. And, um, and believe me, we were paying plenty. <laughs> uh, but this dude, for whatever reason, he picked me out. I mean, we didn't even say hello. And, and he goes, now, who are you guys? And one of the other guys spoke up, and he, you know, he didn't break the cardinal rule of hanging out with me, which is you don't out me in terms of my vocation. But he said, well, we're a group of guys that hang out at church, and one of us is a pastor. I hadn't said anything yet. And the guy goes, well, I guarantee it ain't him. <laughs> and it went downhill. Our relationship went downhill from there. 
we were on a river and he was telling us what to do and not very clearly and I didn't do it fast enough. And he goes, Wagner, he goes, having you is like losing two good men. I thought, that, that's about as creative a way to tell somebody they're useless as I've ever heard. <laughs> you ever seen Christians like that? Like having you in the church is like losing Paul and John. Because we got to go back and clean up after you all the time. I've never forgotten that. Having you is like losing two good men. You are useless. And he's saying, look, you're going to be useless if you are around individuals that, um, that don't speak the word of God correctly, that are given to worldly and empty chatter. Do you know what that means? And, and the reason I'm saying this again, you heard it last week, but Paul tells us to remind you. When he says avoid worldly and empty chatter, you don't get in a discourse with the world. Christians are not to go, you know, I know what God's word says is the standard of marriage, but you know what, maybe we should change it. Why do you think that? I know God says he created them male and female, but maybe we should change it. I know God said that we shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, but maybe we should change it. I, there was a, an article that somebody showed me this week. It was from Christianity Today, and I tweeted it out. And Christianity Today, which itself is struggling in too many ways, um, had an article. It says, the cohabitation dilemma comes for American pastors. Can I just tell you something? There is no dilemma here about cohabitation. The Bible says, don't do anything that causes the ministry to be discredited. There, there is a real truth, real quick, and it's called, can I live with my boyfriend or girlfriend if we don't have sex? No. And you certainly shouldn't be having sex if it ain't your husband or your wife. And there is no dilemma here. And so what I, I just put out on Twitter, those guys, pastors, they go, I don't know how we're going to stand against the tide of the worldly chatter that maybe, that maybe it's not as big a deal as it should be. And maybe, maybe... It just, you know, maybe guys and, you know, they, maybe they can get married. And maybe guys don't even have to be guys. And the transgender dilemma is coming, not here. Amen. And neither is the gossip dilemma and the pride dilemma. But I just said this, I mean, one more time. The, you, know, you know what the dilemma is? It's the deity that is coming that is going to be the real dilemma for a lot of America's pastors. That's their dilemma. They're going to have to give an account. Revelation 22, 12, behold, I am coming quickly and my recompense is with me. And I will render to every man according to his work. And some of you are garbage. And I don't want to be garbage. And so we don't have a dilemma here. We don't engage in constant evaluations about what God's word says and should we modify it for today's age. That's why... In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says this, because in every chapter, there's three things. Preach it and protect it. Suffer for it. It's worth it. 2 Timothy 4, 1. Watch this. See if this sounds familiar. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. In season, in other words, when everybody thinks God's word's great, preach it. And when everybody thinks God's word makes you a bigot, preach it. Reprove, exhort, rebuke with great patience and instruction. Y'all see what we got to do? If you want to be useful, you got to get after it. Uh, here's what I was going to tell you. There, 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 just go through in your mind. I want to ask you if you agree with these things. All right? Because I'm going to let you know, I believe in America, it, it, the, the percentage of people who profess to be Christians is still well above 50%. I think it's 60. It used to be 80. It might have dropped a little bit. But um, I'm going to ask you now, here, here's six things. There's a guy named George Barnes. This is a sociological evidence that there's a lot of vessels that say that they're useful. True or False. Absolute moral truth exists. Play along in your head. Secondly, 
True or false? The Bible is totally accurate in all it teaches. Thirdly, Satan is a real being. He's not a force. He's not symbolic. He's real. And so are the spiritual forces of darkness that um, labor with him. Fourthly, a person cannot be changed um, or saved by good works. Fifthly, Jesus Christ lived a sinless life and died on the cross and was raised from the grave. Sixthly, God is all-knowing, powerful, creator of heavens and earth, no room for evolution, who sovereignly rules over all. Are you six for six? At least in profession? Since 1995, they've asked those questions to individuals. Somewhere between seven at its low to 11% at its high of Americans agree with those things, even while over 80% of Americans call themselves Christians. That, my friends, is straight truth. That, that is, um, those are all propositional statements, which if you disagree with them, you are outside of orthodoxy. You are outside of the faith once and all delivered to the saints. Here's what's interesting. At the height of this, only 18% of evangelical born-again Christians, not people who said, I'm born again, but who, list, who answer other questions that put them in the class of the people that say these things, we're going to call them evangelical born-again, all right? That these are people who believe they're not saved by anything that they could ever do, and they have a, a relationship with Jesus Christ that's still meaningful and a primary in their life today. Only 18% of those people are six for six. Do you want to know Why? Because only 51% of Protestant pastors are six for six. Can I tell you why America that is Christian and filled with churches is not filled with Christ? Because they have not purged themselves of these things. They still fund those churches. They employ those men as their pastors. And they are engaging every week in philosophy and worldly chatter. And they are earthenware. And they are useless to their master. And they will get rendered according to their deeds. And I don't want to be that. And so I've got to make sure that I am, watch this, sanctified. That verb tense there means it's something that is done completely. And so when you're saved, you are justified by grace through faith, but then you are being sanctified. Before you put somebody in a position of spiritual leadership, you want to make sure that there is Jesus at work in their life. You know, one of the last things, you know, I used to work at a place called Canacuck, and I used to tell kids when they would stand up and say they trusted Christ and they're going back to their compromised parents who had a Protestant church, led by a pastor who doesn't believe in a biblical worldview, I just say, can I just ask you to do me a favor? When you go home, would you not start preaching to your mom and dad about how they're a dead, useless vessel at a dead, useless church? Would you just make your bed? Would you start doing the dishes? Would you stop cussing? Would you ask your mom and dad to put covenant eyes on your phone? Would you say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and thank you, and would you write your parents a note talking about how amazingly blessed you were at what they did to sacrifice to send you to Canada? Before you start preaching, and it's okay to share with them what decision you made, but let's leave you a little sanctification. It's why Paul says, don't lay your hands on somebody too soon. That's not just chronological uh, in terms of uh, your age from birth what that also is, is just, hey, before we put Michael Irvin up to give a testimony, the second he says he's a Christian, let's just make sure he's not hanging out at the White House too much. Not 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, but 1980, 1990s cowboy craziness. Don't Google it. Trust me. It's just not loving. I get so sick and tired of seeing Christians who want some celebrity to make a quick profession of faith so we can throw them up there and talk to the world about how much they love Jesus. No. 
before you're useful, there's got to be a little sanctification, a little discipleship, a little training. And if you're here, we want to train you because we want you to be useful. Now watch. Let's just do this very quickly. Verse 22. Now flee. The word there is fuego. It's where we get the English word fugitive. Okay? It says, so look, I'm going to give you three things in verse 22. You write them down. Number one, run from. That's the first one. Flee. Like a fugitive. You don't toy with sin. You don't play with sin um, like, like, you know, if you are... Um, if you've done something wrong, you don't just sell, you know, hang around cops to see if you're quicker than them and go, but you can't cuff me. <laughs> Whoa, right? You are gone, right? I mean, you are high-tailing, you're jumping fences, you're getting in cars, you're carjacking people, you're doing whatever you can to get away from that thing which will own you and imprison you. That's the idea. I talk to guys all the time. We go, I just can't stop looking at porn. And I'm just like, well, <laughs> well, tell me what you've done. Anything? I mean, are you willing to get a flip phone? Oh, no, I'm not going to get a flip phone. Are you willing to let somebody else, you know, get Covenant Eye? Oh, no, I'm not doing that. Are you willing to get rid of Instagram? No. Get off Snapchat? No. I go, well, you're about to be cuffed, bro, for a long time and a slave to sin. And I can go on and on and on with illustrations. It is flee. That's the first thing. But watch this. We don't just run from. We run to. All right? Um, pursue, which means to persecute with zeal. It's the same word that Paul said, I used to pursue Christians to kill them. I'd hunt them down. It's the other side of this thing. On one hand, you're a fugitive fleeing from being in prison. On the other hand, you are doing right and running to overcome evil. Do you get that? There's a run from and there's a run to. And so you pursue righteousness. Righteousness is your relationship with the law. I want what God wants for me. It's going to be good for me. Faithfulness or faith. That is your relationship with man. It's going to change. I'm no longer going to use, uh, see others as a means to my success and as a means to my uh, pleasure I'm going to be a man of my word, and I'm going to love them and seek their best interests. I'm going to be marked by love. Interesting, isn't it, that Paul says one thing ultimately about um, your relationship with God's law, and you're faithful to it, and that's really the bridge to the love. You're going to run after love, and you're going to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness with zeal. Has that described your week? This week, have you been somebody that has run from sin or can you not wait to watch it on Netflix? Are you still cohabitating with sin? And are you running towards, would, would, would define your week as a zealous pursuit of God's word, a zealous effort to memorize it and uh, journal and to abide with Jesus? Would that describe your week? There's a running from, watch this, there's a running to, and then there's a running with. Right here in verse 3, right, verse 22. You're going to have peace when you pursue with zeal, righteousness, faithfully loving other people. That brings peace to your life. It's the good way, and God wants you to walk in it. And you can't get there on your own. So you've got a community of friends who you do it with that are pure-hearted, that call on God. That word for call is the word appeal to, ask for help from, depend on for protection and provision from a deity. That's the word. Oh, God, save us. Are you around friends that go, apart from him, we can do nothing. If God doesn't give us wisdom, we're going to be fools. Is that your community? Here, here is the core values of community. Devote daily. Pursue relationally. That is to... Um, to feed your soul. That is the zeal to pursue righteousness and faith. Here's the second group of core values, right? Uh, live authentically and admonish faithfully. That's where you say, this is how I'm feeding my flesh. This is where I need to be a fugitive from sin, right? So how you feeding your flesh? Well, how, you, how you feeding your soul? That's zealously pursuing. How are you feeding your Flesh, that's the confession. Live authentically and admonish faithfully. And then counsel biblically and engage 
um, missionally, which is what the purpose of a vessel is. Can I just say this? Vessels aren't just there to receive. Vessels receive. Why? They are containers to do what? Feed. Provide. It's our community core values. Hey, don't feed your flesh. Make sure you feed your soul. And if you're useful, you can feed others. See, is this not an amazing text? You've got to get rid of, you've got to quit having the worldly chatter. If you've if you're, if you got pastors that aren't calling you to biblical Christianity, you got trouble. But if you've got pastors that are and you still aren't getting the job done, you're no alien and stranger. You're no immigrant, to quote Hamilton. Immigrants get the job done. Immigrants from heaven who are here on earth get the job done. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. So rich, so good, so true, so necessary for me. Oh, Father, thank you for your grace that lays the firm foundation. There's nothing that we can do. We don't make ourselves gold and silver. You do. But I pray that we would then, um, Father, fuego, we'd run from sin. And we would doiko, we would zealously pursue righteousness, faith, love, and have the fruit of peace. And we'd do it not alone, but in the context of community with our friends. Lord, this week we want to come out of here um, reminded of what's at stake. Let us not be faithless, because you will be faithful, because you can't deny yourself. Let us not deny you. Corporately now, we remind ourselves of the goodness of who you are so we might run with you this week. We thank you that all your life, all our life, you've been faithful. And we celebrate the goodness of God that that might change our hearts and make us run with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this together.